king, an obsession. Journey into the world of Iskorda and travel along with the boy from that way as he embarks on a quest to return to the very depths of the nightmare that brought him through the white door. Join us once more as we step through the white door. So, I'll be sitting in for the next few episodes for our usual narrator. You can call me Eris Blackheart. Join us again as we travel back into the strange and twisted world of Isgalda. As the boy from that way and his tailor friend attempt to lay the sad prince to rest, they stop just long enough for the king's agents to finally descend upon them. The search to find the boy for the king may end. Here and now. Yes, the Jeldurst finally catch up to young Eisen Agro in this latest episode of, The White Door. And now, Chapter 9, The Day After the Ravaging of Eris Blackheart. Taylor hated the beach. Plenty of folks hated the beach, but Taylor hated it most. It wasn't the fact that anything particular about the place was more heinous than the next. It was more that everyone seemed to complain about the sand and the sunburns and the occasional seaside attack. Yet year after year they returned to this blight next to the ocean, over and over. Constantly, despite everything. Something about the sheepish and mindless nature of it all really stuck the tailor in his core. Which was much less juicy and sweet than that of, say, an apple. And more like a stone. Nonetheless, Taylor had come to this place to give a good man a good rest. He brought the wagon to a stop just beyond the sand, muttering words, looking down at the body below. His words were not meant for decent folk. Taylor decided it was best not to venture to the seaside town of Vakinar Buckport, as they had but a single reason to even be out this way, none of which were in the Fairport city a few miles north. Eisen felt a little disappointed not to see Akinar, as the tailor had spun a few interesting stories on their travels towards the water about the place. Eisen had learned that sharks in this strange world lived on land. The boy had said he only thought sharks lived in the ocean, but the tailor assured him the sharks roamed many cities. The boy had images of a solitary shark murderously attacking anyone in sight, as the tailor mentioned something about a lone shark. But as Taylor put it, would hunt a man down to square up any debt, break any knee to get the coin. Taylor sprang down from the front of the wagon in a great purple whoosh. Eisen had to use a stepladder, but made sure to jump off when he was about halfway down. There was no discernible whoosh. Well, boy, the tailor said as he moved from the wagon in a great swirl of purple glory. Here we are. Does this speech have a name? The tailor said he didn't know, but that it reflected light in the same manner as any other beach. Sand, heat, the same usual stuff. What's wrong with the water, Taylor? Eisen said slowly, pointing out to the waves lazily rolling in. Ain't you ever seen a beach before, kid? Well, I have, but not like that. The ocean sprawled out and off towards the horizon, glistening a somber red in the sun. 
The water itself was red, which was very much different from the blue and sometimes brownish oceans that Aizen was used to. Unbelievably to the boy, crimson waves lapped ashore, giving the sand a blood color that was downright creepy. Aizen had seen creepy, like, oops, sorry, Grandpa, didn't know you were in here type creepy. And this was creepier, scary, in the woods, dark, alone. Who made this effigy from sticks? No one here. That kind of creepy. The Red Ocean seemed altogether malicious, as if each wave was plotting with great intent. Some blood clamps, Taylor said after giving Eisen a few moments to really soak it in. What? Taylor walked over to the boy, placing a hand on his shoulder. Though his touch was light, Isaac could feel an immense strength in the tailor's fingers. The boy was sure the man could crush his shoulder blade easily and turned away from such thoughts. Such a red, red ocean. Blood clams, me boy. You see, this whole area is plagued with them. As the tailor said this, he stretched his free arm in a wide sweeping motion across the span of the beach to further accent his point. Isaac seemed confused, so Taylor took the cue and continued on. You see, a blood clam is light, heck, light enough to float about in the water currents. Eventually it'll float by some unsuspecting sea critter, small fish, and pow, snap him right up. Taylor clapped his hands together loudly when he got to the bit about the clam snapping up their food. So then they sink to the ocean floor all full up on whatever unlucky creature they had snapped up. Once at the bottom, the blood clams start to digest the creature. Funny thing is... Damn thing doesn't have a like for the taste of blood. No use for it either. And filters the stuff out through its shell. Normally, a right-sized cluster of blood clamps could hardly turn a good-sized bathtub of water red. The tailor pointed out to the ocean, which was red as far as the eye could see, and certainly bigger than a bathtub. That out there, me lad? That ain't natural. This whole area must be rotten to the bone with them. There's probably millions of them things out there, lad. Millions. Stay out of that water. After a few more minutes of talk on red oceans and blood clams, Taylor and the boy decided it was high time, or high tide, to set the prince to proper rest. Eisen wondered if the prince had taken into account the insane amount of blood clams littering this particular ocean. Then again, Eric had made the request with the last of his strength, which was hardly the time at all for rationale and thinking about what may or may not be in the water where you will last lay. Either way, he had a funny feeling the blood clams would make sure to spread the prince, or at least his blood, far and wide throughout the sea, and there was something oddly beautiful about that. Taylor and the boy walked back toward the covered wagon, and Taylor explained that Pearlie was feeling a bit under the weather once more. Apparently she was also terrible with animals, especially horses, which surprised eyes and none. So Taylor sent Eisen to tend to the horses while he and Pearlie removed the dead prince from the wagon. It was during such that Eisen caught another glimpse of the tailor's elusive wife. When a gust of ocean breeze took Pearlie's bonnet with it, Eisen saw Pearlie to have a very matted and dirty hair, very much encrusted with what almost certainly looked like blood or dirt. I mean, neither of these things is something that should be on someone's head. The bonnet danced momentarily with the wind before landing about a foot from the lead horse in a little heap of beautiful baby blue cloth. Eisen, standing next to the horses, bent down and picked up the escaped head garment. It felt oddly damp in his hands, like the underside of a rotting log. It made his hands feel almost sweaty. Just as he went to turn it over, 
It made him crawl with a certain sense he had never felt before. The tailor seemed to be there suddenly, quickly taking it from him. I'll take that, lad, the tailor said in a bit of a soft tone. Isaac handed the tailor the bonnet, trying to shake off the eerie feeling, the creeps that were dancing upon his spine. The boy continued to feel a sensation of mystery about the tailor's wife, a feeling that had swept him up like broken glass on more than one occasion. He had had enough glimpses of her to put together that she was probably really sick or stricken with something terrible that he knew something about. There was a lot in this Golda that he knew nothing about. If if Golda's disease and sicknesses were anything like everything else, the boy rationed that there could be some truly devastating things out there. Even still, something was amiss about the situation, and the tailor was not being forthcoming. The lead horse whinnied again, pulling Eisen from his images of skeletons and disease. He unhooked the lead horse, whose name was Alabaster McDenson, the great-grandson to Alvin McDenson, the first horse elected to any city government position. Alvin was well known for his work on breaking up the infamous reddish-orange skull gang and for enacting a citywide flat tax. The horse was broken from leather strips tying him to the wagon. Eisen ran his hands down the flanks of Alabaster, feeling both the strength and heat of the horse. He gently reached up near the horse's mouth and grabbed the short straps that hung on either side. Upon smelling the bonnet on Eisen's hand, the horse broke from the boy's grasp in a frantic display of panic and power, tearing off wide-eyed and frothing into the nearby tree line. Eisen had been tossed to the sandy ground, and he felt completely dwarfed looking up at the horse as it had risen above him on its hind legs before taking off. It reminded Eisen of a wall border he had had tens of thousands of horse silhouettes just like that circling his room. Shaking sand from in between his fingers, Eisen smelled his hand. He couldn't tell nothing. The tailor ignored the situation, and he and the boy did not speak again until they met up near the rolling waves where the sand was dark and wet. Two squirrels sat atop a nearby half-dead palm tree, sharing a bit of coconut. Should we warn them? One squirrel said. Nah, let's just see what happens, the second one said as he stuffed a large coconut piece into his cheek. Besides, we've got a great view up here, and this coconut is much too delicious to pass up. From somewhere, deep in the cradle of the ocean, the depths stirred. The king was in motion, pushed by a regret that was deeper than any ocean. I could be in bed still, Spindle said, squinting his eyes at the overbearing sunlight that shone randomly through the forest canopy. Yeah, Manic replied, I could be in Eris Blackheart still. Spindle laughed with a few flashes of perversion behind his squinted eyes. Was that the name of that wretched woman you took to bed last night? Sundari asked as he knelt over some wagon tacks, running a finger in the deep groove behind the wagon wheel. Well, one of them. Manic snapped back, a wry smile, watching Slendari up front, tracking the wagon's journey through this part of the wood. <clears throat> to Manic, the trail left by the wagon was obvious. Huge swaths of forest and foliage were broken and upturned, all leading in a fairly straightforward line. Manic looked down at the upturned soil left behind the wagon wheels. Without bending down to look, he could tell that there were at least four people riding in or on the wagon. 
Furthermore, it was apparent to him that whoever was driving the carriage had made no attempt to cover any traces of their passing, a telling sign that they were not very aware of the severity of their situation. Despite all this, Slendari was tracking the wagon in a manner to suggest a need for great tracking skill. His skill. Only his skill. The elf took every opportunity to bend down, smell, taste, feel. Everything. Everything as they went by. Trying to drive home a feeling amidst the gel dirt that only his true elven tracking abilities could unravel this great mystery. Mantig was sure it was not some pompous show, as Slendari was prone to do, but that the elf actually believed that the rest of them had not the skill. He shared his observation with Spindle and Cadman, who were walking on either side of him. Ha! Cadman said something random about a tea cozy. Hey, Slendari, any sign of them? Spindle poked in a series of voices he could muster. A large broken stick, obviously crushed by the wagon, and Slendari's hand only further added to the difficulty the three had in holding back their laughter. You know, to the normal untrained eye, that would appear as nothing more than an old and mostly broken stick, Manitink added. Cadman said something about dwarven war policies and the current living conditions of the common dwarf miner. By the time Slendari said something swiftly back to them, the three of them had burst into an uncontrollable fit of laughter. <clears throat> Several yards up, Manny could see a gray horse running towards them at breakneck speed. Even from this distance, the loot player could clearly see the large whites of the horse's eyes and the muscles pulled tight in his neck. Foam fell from its jowls, and with each gallop, the wind pressing the dripping froth against its chest. The horse was terrified. Manny could almost feel the cold sweat on his own skin, looking at it running at such a frantic pace. In all this, he noticed that Slendari had yet to move from his position directly in the horse's path. He thought to call out to the elf, but for some, or perhaps many reasons, he did not. Instead, he fixed his eyes on the approaching horse, occasionally glancing at the spot where the two would collide. Just as the horse was about to smash into the elf, Slendari looked over his shoulder up at Manic, winked, and then disappeared in a thick puff of swirling purple smoke, only to reappear the moment the horse had passed. Manit looked away as to not catch the ear-to-ear -ear smile he was so sure Sundari had sent his way. Off in the distance, Manit could see a wagon, covered in a most comfortable fabric. Killed by love he was, the tailor said, placing Eric's jacket near where the body lay. With Eisen's help, they put the prince's coat on him and straightened his clothes. Eisen thought Eric looked quite regal and rather peaceful. Some loves can go on after death, lad, but not many of them, Taylor said, standing up and casting a glance over Eisen's head towards the wagon. Do you think the trouble in his heart has stopped, Taylor? The boy asked with a tear decorating his left cheek. I guess it stopped altogether, for better or worse. Eisen looked out over the red waves and into the blue sky. That seemed to be as real and as sad and as golda as where he was from. Eisen had seen pixies cut in half alive, baby-eating cats with treachery on their will, and wives with a hint of death on them. And all this in the short time he had come through the white door. Trolls and elves were looking to bring death to him at every turn. He momentarily felt like perhaps death was following him. Maybe even making a place for him. The tailor came around the body to Eisen and clasped the boy on the shoulder. Those strong fingers. 
There were things tearing Eric up worse than any sickle or sword could ever do, son. A good man torn down by the gilded promises of love, the words of forever. Listen to me, boy. In here, in your heart, anyone can live forever. Immortality is in the memories we make and those who go on without us. Those we carry in here that are alive as long as we are. And if we pass ourselves to others, it can be forever. The moment they shared was brief, but it seemed to do the boy good. In fact, Eisen carried the tailor's words that day with him for as long as he lived. The boy looked down at the prince, a tear falling onto Eric's forehead as he did. Time had begun to play against the prince as both Eisen and the tailor made comments on his waxy appearance. It felt like only moments ago that they had first met in the back of the wagon. That sad lump. And now here we were. You know, can't go to the final depths looking like something the gollywobble dragged in, Taylor said, putting on the prince's coat and buttoning it up and fixing his hair. Isa stood silently, losing the fight against the lump in his throat. Every time he looked at Eric, it seemed to get a little tighter. He felt deeply homesick for the first time since he had come to his goal, but deeper than ever before, a feeling he was surprised had lay dormant this long. Eric reminded him of someone else, and he couldn't place a finger on it. Death had a funny way of reminding people of who they love. The tailor said it was time to say goodbye. A voice came from near the wagon, a voice Eisen had heard once before shortly after Palisere had set Valley's cottage aflame. He would know it anywhere. The words rang in his mind and dripped down into his chest, tightening his lungs like icy hands. It was the voice of Tentella Slendari. Oh, not a goodbye. So tragic, Slendari said. He stepped from behind the wagon as he said it, seeing Eisen frozen in fear only widened the elf's smile, so mocking. He held a brown leather bag in one hand. It was the pixie pouch, writhing and humming with anger. Sundari tightened his grip around the top of the bag. I do hate goodbyes, Manic said as he stepped out coolly from behind the horse at the other end of the wagon. He held a dagger in his hand, running a finger up and down the blade. It was cliche, but dangerous and effective. Unless it's to a pixie-loving boy and his seamstress friend, Spindle said, revealing his rather concealed position from atop the wagon. I can have your frock hemmed and ready by tomorrow night, sir, Cadman added, stepping out. The air between them all seemed to rattle and die. It popped and fizzled. Eisen wanted to run, but his legs wouldn't let him. Besides, where would he run? As he was more or less lost than he had ever rightly been. The only thing he could feel, other than Sundari and Manic's burning glare, was the tingling of the sickle wound that seemed to be trying to remind the boy that he would never make it far, should he even choose to run. The tailor shattered the intensity of the now looming silence though most eyes stay trained on the boy. Taylor, he said defiantly, glaring a little halfling, perched up on the wagon. I'm not a seamstress. I'm a tailor. He added that seamstresses had certain qualities that he did not, such as breasts and the ability to give birth. When the tailor said breasts, he cupped his hands up to his chest, spent a laugh, and spit in the passing breeze. Manic thought of Eris Blackheart and the lewd activities they had shared at the fermented grape inn near Akinar Buckport. <clears throat> By the look of it, mister, you're a few golly waffles away from a nice pair yourself, Spindle retorted comically. Eisen and Taylor were alone in finding the comet not funny as the jilders burst into a moment of evil laughter. 
And Taylor stated his profession again, only this time holding his crotch as he did. I got a pair myself, said Manic with a sadistic smile as he withdrew a second dagger that had been secreted away somewhere beneath his vest. Enough, all of you, Slendari said, loudly holding up an open hand to further imply a need for the new silence. It would seem, the elf began, tying multiple knots in the top of the pixie pouch as he spoke, that you have had quite a time in our lovely little part of the country. Met some nice people, I assume, doing a bit of heroics here and there, or so I've heard. It seems to me that you are not from these parts, my boy, though Mr. Rusgrove thought you surely to be a lost local boy. As he said this, Lindari tossed the knotted pouch at his feet. Everyone looked at each other slowly. They didn't know what to do. He withdrew the tailor's letter to Rusgrove, which was flecked with what was surely blood. The icy hands gripped Eisen's lungs tighter than ever. The tailor looked uneasy. What do you know about white doors, kid? Manning asked, growing tired of Slendari's dramatic approach to wrestling information from the boy. Oh, 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 Taylor mumbled quietly realizing the severity of what was happening. Glancing over at Eisen only confirmed what he feared. These strangers were the Jeldurst. We mean only to fulfill the wishes of a friend, sirs. Then we'll be on our way. No trouble, the tailor said, trying to sound firm, but respectful. No trouble, Cadman repeated, opening his cello to reveal a compartment holding a most wicked-looking battle axe full of trouble. The jagged edges of the blade glinted in the warm beach sunlight. Cadden withdrew it and gave it a few practice swings. Spindle said something about an elven cello hoarding a dwarven axe that was used by a half-troll. They all laughed again. Once more, Eisen did not laugh. Boy, Manning said, checking his pocket watch and then lighting a cigarette, which perfumed the air with a light orange scent. The door. Eisen didn't know what to say. They seemed to have him finally, and he saw no escape from it. All eyes were transfixed on him. A crowd, eager for any word. Raw excitement and emotion crackled, almost like lightning between them all. The boy thought of Eric, and surprisingly, this calmed him greatly. Cat got your tongue? Spindle laughed. Probably payback for burning down his cottage, Manning added dryly, still waiting on the boy to respond or make a move. He half hoped the boy would try to run. Got a sneaking suspicion that you come from that way? Sundari said, just as a strong breeze blew Rusgrove's letter from his hand, which landed near Manic's boots. A second, oddly strong wind blew the letter flat against the loot player's other boot. He bent down and picked it up, turning it over once or twice in his hands before looking back towards the tailor, Eisen and the body of the sad little prince. Manic smiled deeply once he met Oz with the tailor. He held the letter up in his left hand and placed a cigarette under one of the hanging corners. It didn't take long thin stream of dark smoke appeared, coupled with a few licking orange flames that popped randomly with hot ink. The smoke drifted ominous up and into a few palms behind the wagon. Two squirrels scurried off, barking angrily at the nasty smoke. Another strong wind. I... I didn't open the door, Eisen said to Manic, looking the man directly in the face for the first time. Hank's top hat made Eisen nervous for whatever reason. It was ajar the boy said before anyone could reply. Manic smiled and then tossed the burning letter into the covered wagon. Funny, Slendari said, slowly withdrawing a thin sword and pointing it at the tailor as he spoke. If you wouldn't have met this boy, 
You never have written that letter to Mr. Rusgrove, who'd still be alive. Perhaps even your comfortable little wagon wouldn't be minutes away from becoming ashes in this strong wind. Taylor called out desperately for Pearlie, whom the Jelders were unaware was still inside the covered wagon. Eisen thought about Palisare and the other pixies that were trapped in their pouch, which Lindari had nodded and now tossed into the wagon. Many things happened next, few of which were ever clearly recalled by anyone there. An odd silence swept over the sandy beach, only broken by Spindle weakly saying Slendarly's name a few times, as the halfling stared out towards the ocean from his vantage point on top of the newly smoking and soon burning wagon. Everyone turned to see that the ocean was pulling itself back, revealing much more of the coast, which was littered as far as the eye could see with clusters of what Eisen was sure must be the blood clams. In the distance, a great wave was swelling and grising, growing towards the clouds. The wave seemed to endlessly climb up and up and up until it blocked out the sun, casting an ominous black shadow over the beach. No one moved. No one could move. Fear is often the greatest of bear traps. Eisen felt a rumble, then blackness, as his lungs filled with salty water. All he could see in his mind was the prince smiling deeply. He smiled back into the depths, losing himself in the myriad of emotion and disorienting underwater currents. The water seemed to wash the fear from the boy's mind. It washed everything away, and he gave into the tumbling darkness that came for him. When the water subsided, the beach appeared just as it had before Taylor and Eisen had come, save a small hint of oranges that passed on the salty breeze. Don't forget to come back in mid-December for the thrilling continuation of The White Door. After being swept away by a massive wave, where will the Jeldurist and the boy from that way end up? Who will live? Who will die? What comes next when all has been washed away in wet darkness? Join us next time for Chapter 10, in a whole far away.